0: Dictionaries define empowerment as the authority or power given to someone to do something. To me, empowerment relates more to reconnecting with or discovering the power and authority we already have but that has somehow been minimized by external forces like societal shame or weird messages we've learned. So sexual empowerment is all about embracing our authentic sexuality however we see fit, no goofy rules about it. It prioritizes respect for ourselves and others and often takes self-awareness and curiosity and some amount of boldness. So let's say you're prioritizing this work in your life. What role can food and eating habits play in the ways we feel about or express our sexuality? How can the food rules and plans we commonly hear about impact our sexual health and confidence? As an eating disorder survivor, these topics are very close to my heart. I'm excited to be exploring them today with a registered dietitian and nutritionist who specializes in eating disorders, Robin L. Goldberg. First, a big sponsor shout out. Exploration and pleasure are huge parts of sexual empowerment, of course, and toys, lube, and other sexual health products from the Pleasure Chest can facilitate them big time. So visit thepleasurechest.com or one of their stores in LA, New York, or Chicago to start shopping. They're running some really fun toy giveaways on Instagram this month. Follow them at, at Pleasure chest Stores, plural, Pleasure Chest Stores. Thank you so much for joining me today, Robin. How are
1: you? Thank you for inviting me. It's fantastic to be here. I'm wonderful. How are you doing? I'm excited. I have always respected your work. I think it was, I don't know, it was years ago
0: that we first connected because I was writing an article. And you immediately became one of my favorite dietitians to interview because you're so body positive. You don't shame Food. Um, you are very, uh, you have a non dieting approach. Could you tell us a bit about your work and that motivation?
1: Absolutely. So I've been in private practice in Beverly Hills, California for the last 22 years where I see kids tweens, teens, and adults with body image issues, eating disorders, and medical issues. And I have found early on in my career that the traditional route of dieting really would lead people to fail again in their lives, since the typical person knows quite a bit about food and they don't eat for the proper reasons. So really learning how to approach food from a a weight-inclusive lens standpoint and help people be able to regain the trust and confidence within themselves and their body as opposed to all these external messages that we hear on a day-to-day basis or even a minute-by-minute basis that it's surrounding us Everywhere, so that becomes what's normal in our society, and society's message is really what needs to change. It's not the person, which sadly has been filtrated by all of those messages that we are we're living in
0: It's so true, and it gets really confusing. I remember when I was trying very hard to heal from the eating disorder I was diagnosed with years ago, I went to a bookstore and I was looking for I wanted like, to really understand how my body worked and what all this food stuff meant. And it was amazing to me how much contradicting information was out there that was presented to me as fact. They were kind of like these fad diets, but they were presented as this is the scientific truth. And it's so frustrating when you're trying to take care of yourself and you don't know how to sort that all out.
1: Well, it can be very confusing because I always like to say the internet is a great place to research different topics or a toxic place because it's not regulated and anybody can put any data out there. And as I always like to you know, clarify, all registered dietitians are nutritionists, but not all nutritionists are registered dietitians. So if you're someone that is a well-known individual, if you're influ- an influencer, then anyone can put out a book. And sadly, when a person feels desperate and helpless and they want quick results, whatever sounds appealing, they'll they'll grab and essentially bite the bait with the hope that it will help them succeed. And typically it results in failure.
0: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I've talked to so many people about the ways that body shame and challenges in their sexuality and their ability to have pleasure in their lives seems to be so connected. What do you see as kind of the biggest um, tie between how we eat and whether we strict or whatever kinds of quote unquote food rules we follow and sexual empowerment?
1: Well, you said a very important term before August, and that is pleasure. Pleasure just the the idea of deserving pleasure in one's life, whether it's deserving to enjoy a meal, deserving to go on a vacation, being able to have pleasurable conversations. Oftentimes individuals I see in my private practice will say whatever body size they're in, they will feel like that right has been revoked because they have felt out of control, um, that the food has been running them as opposed to they're running the food. And, and, And to respond to what you asked about just body shape or size, if an individual is restricting, if they're malnourished, does not matter how they look, then any kind of natural desire to seek pleasure has been abolished. So if a person is excluding a particular food group, like there's so many trends going on right now, and if a person is excluding a particular food group, that desire Could lessen. They might feel like, oh, I have a lot going on in my life, so therefore I'm not interested or I'm really tired. But eventually it becomes their norm. Their libido has essentially flatlined. And to feel if the other part is if they're not consuming enough. Calories just for what their body requires to expend. You know, I'll hear clients say, "Well, I don't, I don't move my body. I'm not active." Well, if you're reading or writing or you're interacting with people, your body's always burning. It never stops. And and the other part of it too is, it becomes real when they eventually go to a physician for a physical and when their labs are drawn so like for you know women it's the estrogen level and for males it's the testosterone level and through each cycle of life like with a woman the estrogen level changes so you know individuals i see that are not in menopause well we'll say like oh you know i'm not menstruating i'm not sure why but And I I don't have a desire for anything, whether it's sex, whether it's to go out with friends, to have cravings. Cravings are oftentimes suppressed on so many fronts that, you know, people don't realize, like, they want their estrogen level, whether you're 20 years old or 40 years old, to be greater than 100. So just the idea, you know, when I hear you speaking about the pleasure chest and all these types of things, it's like just... You, know, you, might it as well, you It doesn't right? occur to you, right? It doesn't occur. It's yeah. like you saying, I'm going to give you an all-paid trip to Paris. And someone's like, yeah. so? Versus if you said it to me, it's so like, yeah, bring it on. I'm so right. excited. And, and so any kind of desire and interest is just, they're like a dead fish. It's so true. I remember when I was, I
0: had an eating disorder but wasn't yet diagnosed. And I was living in New York with a bunch of other models I was modeling at the time. And it was so ironic to me that we were arguably selling sex right like seduce the camera and we would get into these clubs for free and everything was so quote-unquote sexy and none of us had any energy whatsoever to be interested in sex I mean if if sex were happening a lot of times it was part of sort of like a a release and not not for me That like I was the least sexually interested in any anybody or anything when I was like modeling for top companies with one of the top agencies in the world. And it wasn't until later that I realized the irony there, you know, that that we we sexualize so much and, and objectify, um, especially the, the the woman, the female body, right? And at the same time, we're, we were rewarded and paid to weigh less or to, like, restrict. And um, there's so much pressure. And that, that makes me really sad. You mentioned cutting nutrient groups and how that can really have an impact. I know cutting carbs has become and for a while has been a big, big deal. Um, Could you speak to kind of some of the, the
1: issues with that? So carbohydrates are the only fuel source that give us energy. That's what fuels our brain our organs, our muscles. So if you think about a marathon runner, they're not grabbing a, a chicken thigh at each mile or an avocado. <laughs> that would be so stinky. <laughs> I just
0: imagine like these big, yeah. But yeah, because they aren't. They're, they're grabbing the, the glucose sources. The
1: yes, carbs. right. Exactly. So either grabbing a bagel or banana or orange and, and such. I know when I rode the bike this morning, I had my big bagel peanut butter and jelly sandwich so I could Climb up the mountain. I'm not eating the leftover swordfish from last night. That would do nothing other than taste delicious. So the problem is the more that we deny ourselves of carbohydrates, the desire to increase caffeine increases because we don't have energy. Our body's not naturally producing it. And the thing is, it's a a shortcoming in the design problem of our brain. Our brain does not have glucose stored in it. Our bodies are required to consume some sort of carbohydrate every few hours regularly. Mm -hmm. So if a person is just eating chicken and broccoli, they might say, Oh yeah, I feel really energized, which it's like that placebo, not to mention they're probably constipated, they're irritable. Bad breath. There's like a smell yes, they, well, to ketosis. It's 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 a it's a serious problem. And the way to cure ketosis is have a piece of bread. And now actually as we you know we're talking a little bit, you know, sexuality here, there's products for for women because they're having a foul smell come out of their vagina and instead of buying a because they're on the keto diet and the way to cure it is have a piece of bread and you don't have to inject something or insert something in your body so it's it's really un- unfortunate and it's scary because spilling ketones in your urine i mean one could go into a coma if they're on it long enough and yeah. and it's there's and and also you're putting a lot of pressure on your kidneys by just consuming protein. So within this an individual becomes more fixated and focused on food when they are denying themselves carbohydrates because carbohydrates all of our bodies, as I like to say, require some carbohydrates, some protein, and some fat. But when we have a deficit of carbohydrates, we become more hyper-aware of what we will and will not eat and when we can eat again. Because all of the what I call fake food, eating a head of lettuce or fluid loading, consuming so much liquid to fill ourselves up, is not long-term sustaining. It's not physically and emotionally satisfying. One will feel filled up short term but soon thereafter they're going to ruminate mm-hmm. on when they can eat and what they can eat and how yeah. much and that is their life they are a professional dieting individual or professional patient because it's been that's all they have room to think about in yeah, their life it's so
0: sad it's such a sad place to be in and i again, um, empathize and sympathize with people in that place, as I know you do, because you work with so many people struggling in this way. It, it's hard for someone to imagine who's not struggled in that way. Why don't you just eat? And that's really not a helpful, <laughs> helpful take, um, because it's it's so deep and so complicated. I love that you mentioned the brain, because I, I know I've read that studies show that the the cells in the brain need twice as much carbohydrate as the rest of the body. And we talk a lot about the brain being the most sexual organ. It's where desire starts. It's where our, our moods are affected so much by all the different chemicals going on. And if you interfere with that, you have no, like you said, no energy, brain fog, confusion, forgetfulness, like all these, all these things that make not only sex, but like intimacy with a person, um, knowing what your desires are, as you said, to go on a vacation or have pleasure of any kind because you have these. uh, Dr. Megan Fleming, our resident uh, therapist who weighs in every week, she talks about intrusive thoughts and how they impact so much a, a person's desire in sex and often during sex. Do you find, I don't know if people bring up any sort of intimate issues with you, if they feel comfortable sometimes doing that. But I imagine those food thoughts also come up in the bedroom. Like maybe you think that you're going to want to be physically intimately close with somebody, but it's so easy, especially when you're naked, to start judging and fixating.
1: Yes. Well, just to respond to one thing you mentioned before, is so there is a hormone in our brain called neuropeptide Y. And when an individual does not consume a sufficient amount of carbohydrates, that hormone is not manufactured, produced effectively. So when a person is having maybe bread feels so you know scary, maybe instead they're having beans or they're having pasta, let's say. That allows that hormone to be more effective, like if they are on an SSRI, an antidepressant medication, from the standpoint of having that medication work most effectively for them. And I know with the clients I see who don't want to be on medication that are, oftentimes if their psychiatrist is increasing their dose, it could be because they've had a suboptimal amount of carbohydrates in their diet, so their medication has not been working as effectively for them. So with within that, it it's really goes hand in hand, and just having your brain work most efficiently. We all want to have our brain give us the most bang for our buck, and especially as we age, our brain cells tend to diminish, and it's easy to be forgetful. But when you are in a place of being malnourished, your brain is not as acute to retain information. Or you might have a conversation, but like, as I'll say, the individuals I'll see, it'll be what I call the executive self, how they're presenting themselves to me in person. But it's their eating disorder self that comes out with a vengeance as soon as they leave our session. So the idea of like within their body, As I have found, it doesn't matter, August, the shape or size a person is in when they are malnourished and or they're restricting if they have disordered eating and thinking. Feeling body positive and feeling comfortable and confident in one's body is is very difficult. So I oftentimes start with clients to look at tolerating themselves because liking themselves often feels like too much work Mm. for them to do as well.
0: That's such a good point. Yeah, because if it sounds impossible, you might not even try. And this ties in really well, actually, with a listener question we received this week from someone named Terry who wrote this. Hi, I was recently diagnosed with depression and started medication that is helping me emotionally and life-wise so much. Unfortunately, I've also gained 10 pounds and my sex drive is lower, maybe because I feel insecure about my weight, though I know it's a potential side effect of SSRIs. My weight has leveled off, so I'm wondering, do I just accept my new shape and size? I had an eating disorder in my teens, so I'm hesitant to diet. Terry, thank you so much for your question. I know so many people are in a similar situation, and my heart really goes out to you. I think it's beautiful and brave that you are really considering all these factors. Here's what Dr. Megan Fleming had to say.
2: TERRY thanks so much for this question. And I'm so glad you're asking it, because you are not alone. Um, you know, a common side effect of antidepressants, the SSRIs in particular, is the sexual side effects of both decreased desire and often um, more difficulty or challenging having an orgasm. And so I think that it's important that you recognize, as you are, that it's a balancing act. In fact, one of the symptoms of depression in and of itself can be decreased desire. Um, But that overall, it's great to hear that you're doing well on this medication because, you, you know, your mood is everything. And so I want to sort of highlight a few things. One is that um, it's great that you recognize in recovering from an eating disorder or for others um, who might be listening, they may have just disordered eating, a pattern of disordered eating that, you know, changes in weight can be incredibly, I mean, and distressing, honestly, for anyone, but in particular, for anybody with that history, it can trigger sort of old thoughts, feelings, and behavioral patterns. So I think it's mindful and wise to recognize that even the connotation of a diet, right, is not something that might be helpful or conducive for you. And so certainly it's important to recognize that, you know, we're talking about a healthy lifestyle, right, and always be mindful of our choices. Um, But other things that you certainly can be aware of is that, um, you know, it sounds like you're just recently t- started taking the medication, and it's definitely a dose-related side effect. So over time, you might be able to see whether or not, speaking with your doctor, prescribing doctor, you might be able to decrease the dose a little bit. Other options are and to consider is potentially decreasing it and or adding Welbutrin, which is also known as bupropion, um, which is a medication that affects both norepinephrine and dopamine and is sort of sometimes been known... Um, anecdotally in the clinical trials to improve sexual response um, and also to appreciate that there's also the potential role of what we call a drug holiday, which is, you know, if you feel like most people, sex is probably before the weekend. So, you know, how is your mood and how does it tolerate, you know, not taking, say, taking the medication on a Friday and then resuming it, say, on a Sunday? Again, these are all things to talk to your provider about, but they're um, well-known strategies that have been really helpful for many. And then I think it comes back to Again, when you said sort of acceptance of your body, the one that you're in right now, um, I forget where I read it, but someone was sort of saying it's sort of a rebellious act to love the body you're in because we have such cultural um, ideas about, quote unquote, the ideal body type. And I think there's a lot of shame for any woman who isn't that ideal. And so you don't want to be sort of hijacked by that cultural narrative. You want to own it for yourself. And what I would also say is like, pay attention to what is it you love about your body, you know, is it your eyes, and you could play them up, is it your lips, and maybe, you know, putting on red lipsticks, is it your breasts, is it your legs, I think there's a lot of opportunity, I think of Mae West, in a sense, when I'm thinking about this, like, no matter what your shape or size, there, there are parts of your body that you can accentuate, that really make you feel sort of sexy, and so, again, I often say, as you know, that the biggest sex organ is our mind, and so, even though medication can play a role, our thoughts really do as well. That's why I think it's great that you're mindful and noticing that you're distracted or, or distressed by this 10-pound change in your body weight. And so what I would say is we are—we have to own and you know the recognition that we are so capable of turning ourselves both off and on, right? And so I want you to think about all the ways that you can redirect your thoughts. I always say if they're intrusive thoughts, we don't wanna give them oxygen, right? We don't want to um, focus on them because what we focus on expands. We wanna focus our attention on that which turns us on. So what is it about your partner? What is it about their smell? Um, You know, it could be fantasy. It could be just keeping your self-exploration, masturbation on the table, because I often say it's like keeping your sexy pilot light on. Um, Keeping sex and what is sexy on your radar. So I definitely wanna encourage you to Take advantage of all the ways you can turn yourself on, and things your partner does, and reminding them they can do that also turns you on, and also just again, play in the space of, you know, where you are right now. Um, these different techniques, in terms of potentially speaking to your doctor about the drug holiday or adding wellbutrin, but ultimately realizing your mental health, your mood, your well-being is the most important thing. And this is definitely something that isn't static and is changing. And there are many different things I can imagine you haven't yet tried. Because again, keep in mind that arousal is both mental and physical, right? So it might be because it could take longer to achieve orgasm, maybe it's increasing physical stimulation, like maybe adding a vibrator into the mix. or maybe adding more nipple play or anal play. So again, thinking about the different ways that this is an opportunity in a sense to do more exploration of turn-ons and things that you probably even haven't yet tried before that um, can sort of you know, bypass sort of this threshold that may be decreasing from a physiological perspective, from the neurotransmitter perspective, your capacity for desire and orgasm, but that's not a static thing. So I really want to empower you to realize that you have many, many choices here and you should explore and play and try on, or as I say, try, try again. And as always would love to hear how it goes.
0: Thank you so much, Dr. Megan. A little side note to you all that she's working on a special project uh, involving follow-up questions. So if you have asked a question and we've answered it on the show uh, and you'd like to have a chance to actually talk with Dr. Megan, please drop her a note or reach out to me. Her website is greatlifegreatsex.com. You can hit contact. I loved what she said about paying attention to what you do love about your body and you know, not giving intrusive thoughts oxygen. Like, sometimes you can acknowledge them and and learn to not give them so much weight, um, for lack of better words. Do you have any other thoughts to, to share with Terry, Robin?
1: Yes. Um, well, the first thing is, and is, this is difficult for people to accept, our bodies are not meant to remain the same as we age. Our bodies change not only every year, every decade, of course different medications could have an impact on the body shift but also perhaps before she was on the SSRI she was not eating regularly she had different food cravings maybe her desire to move was there it wasn't I mean there's so many factors maybe she has found that okay I was you know not an emotional eater then but I am now and and perhaps just the idea of the confidence within herself now she is finding it's it's very pronounced because she never cared for her her body before, and now it's just more, you know, prevalent. It's louder to her. So I mean, I, I do think it's important for her to maybe take a social media break um, because I think there's so many unrealistic body shapes and sizes there. People don't realize things are you know airbrushed and tucked and plucked and photoshopped. But also, if she is someone who is on social media, being able to follow body positive individuals people that can give a message that is supportive um, also being being able to focus on all the positives of what her body can do for her she might say you know what I'm able to walk up a flight of stairs with my groceries or I'm able to bend down and carry my my child or my pet i mean these are things we don't think about and and really looking at also how her relationship with food and her body has evolved before she was on the ssri and where it's at now and i think you know the one thing i always like to comment is we can over consume any food or food group we can over consume salad just like we can overconsume, you know a, a decadent you know cheeseburger so for her and i agree because you know she had the courage to write and share that she had a history of an eating disorder with anyone i see i would never want them to be on a diet or meal plan i think it's really looking at how to develop a new narrative and really develop a new relationship with food and and her body as Mm -hmm. well and and for her to explore that on a deeper level
0: i really really appreciate that that perhaps she could become more in tune. As you said, she's now paying more attention to care because she's getting help she needed. And it's interesting you brought up the point that maybe she wasn't as, you know, because she wasn't as happy before, a lot of times untreated depression makes you very lethargic. So sometimes you put on muscle because you are more active once you're taking care of your brain. You know, like there's so many factors. But the thing that is so easy to fixate on sometimes and for some people, especially if you go to the doctor, they do your stats, they put you on the scale. You know, it's it's like that's the thing that you can see. Um, whereas she's she's feeling so much better in so many ways, which is really big. I know that some people when they hear you say there's n- like no plan that that gives some people anxiety, right? It's like if they've always been on a they always need a, a diet plan or a, or a like rules to follow, what do you tell people when they they're having a hard time wrapping their heads around it because I love that like the whole intuitive eating principle I think is really powerful
1: Great. I first want to respond to something you had said. Sure. so I always like to say a healthy brain is a healthy body, yeah, and when a brain is not getting a sufficient amount of nutrition from all the different you know food groups, then we start to become more fixated and focus mm-hmm. on on this topic. And the other part is when you were speaking about going to the doctor's office. So my clients that are nutritionally compromised that require the medical monitoring. Anyone I see, I ask them to do what's called blind weighing. And what that means is having them stand on the scale backwards because if they see the number, that number can make them feel better or worse and really activate the eating disorder mm-hmm. voice. Yep. So even, let's say, you know, this person lives in a larger body, I always like to say, you know, it's your right as a patient to tell them you don't want to be weighed. So, you know, it's unfortunate that, you know, healthcare providers weigh their patients, but it's done because they're audited by insurance carriers so they could make up a number or they could write down what they've done in the past. The number does not serve a purpose.
0: That's so cool that you can say don't weigh me because I did advocate for myself for many years to not know my weight because it was so triggering for me. And now it doesn't phase me, but it took me a long time to get to a place where it doesn't really matter to me what the number says. But I remember the times when people accepted that well that I didn't want to know. And other times, and this might have been my own perception, but I felt very judged. And just hearing you say that I feel can really help people to say, this is your right. It's okay. You're taking care of yourself and you don't even have to be weighed. I mean, that's... That's probably a huge relief because some people probably don't even want to go to the doctor if they're going to go through something that that painful.
1: Well, it's common that people will avoid going to all health care providers because they've been shamed, stigmatized, judged. And even if you're going for an ear infection, the medical assistant just protocol-wise will have a person get on the scale. It's like, well, what does my ear infection have to do with my weight? So, oh, yes, I've had clients really develop a a level of confidence to be able to use that voice and to be able to exercise it when they're going to anyone's office.
0: Yeah, yeah, that makes so much sense. Um, Before we get to the intuitive eating piece, I wanted to ask you about clean eating, because that is something that I feel it's so it's a it can be a slippery slope for, for some people, it seems where because on the surface, Eating cleaner, fresher, you know, I don't even know if I really like the word clean for eating. It's kind of like calling sex dirty or clean or, you know, stigmatizing. If you have an STI, then you're dirty. Um, But when people hear, oh, it's fruits and vegetables and these natural foods, what can be wrong with that? So could you share what can be potentially risky about that?
1: Yes. So I always like to say, if a person wants clean eating, take your food and wash it under the sink. (laughs) That is a way to have clean eating. I love it. There you go. There's your plan. (laughs) That's it. So what unfortunately for many, quote unquote, I'm going to even re-coin the phrase, I mean, so clean eating is also known as orthorexia nervosa. That is the obsession to eat healthy. It has to be in its natural state. It has to be organic, vegan, raw, paleo, uh, unprocessed, etc. I could have a whole show on this with you. And unfortunately, people take health to a whole new level where they are ambivalent to eat out because they don't know how something's prepared or where it came from or what's in it. And it's just, they are so consumed within it. And I mean, I remember having a client, a, a 10-year-old, and the and the child asked the mother, they were hungry in our session, for some grapes. And the mother said, I didn't buy them. They're not organic. And, and And it's, you know what, the idea of a person, I mean, I get like, sometimes it's nice to be able to buy some various types of organic produce. But the idea that one is stressed or anxious and and morally their thoughts are wrapped up around this, that's a bigger issue. And, And it starts out innocently for many. And I would say a very high percentage of people that I see have, quote unquote, restrictive eating, anorexia nervosa, orthorexia subtype, because it's the idea they may have five foods that they consume and it's only within their home. It's only from a source that they know and they trust and there's even restaurants and juices around LA. I mean, I my office is in Beverly Hills, and I'm literally, I would say, in the land of eating disorders, yes. eating disorders central, Very much so. um, exclamation yeah. point. And, and it's really be- become a problem where I have clients whose parents have not resolved their own issues with food and their body, and it's been projected onto the child, and they'll think like, oh, it started out so innocently that, you know, my child wanted to make different food choices, but now where significant physical changes medically have all been... activated and they are in a full thrust of an eating disorder. So, you know, I always like to reference the book Health Food Junkies by Dr. Stephen Bratman. And he was the physician who coined orthorexia nervosa. So I think it sounds innocent, but it's a bigger issue.
0: And it's so insidious. It's so hidden because you get praised for it. I mean, you get praised, sadly, for a lot of different risky, harmful diet things, I think, because they are so socially acceptable, but that type of eating especially, because people say, wow, you have such discipline. Wow, you know I couldn't you're so committed. How do you thing. do that? Right, right, right. so so knowing that is is really, really important. So for somebody who has difficulty, maybe they've been on diet since they were were a kid because maybe their whole family dieted, which I know is not uncommon. It can be a bit scary to hear, no plan, you know, that, that's it, because if you don't know how to trust your body, what, what do you do in that
1: state? Well, I always like to say, August, if the individual was an intuitive eater naturally, they wouldn't be coming to me. So I would never have someone swim in the ocean without learning how to swim. Thank you. I can't. (laughs) (laughs) I can frantic doggy paddle. That's it. So I like to start, and I really work from a one-on-one individualized basis, but Mm -hmm. I'll start more with what I like to call mechanical eating, creating a roadmap of meals and snacks that feel safe and comfortable for someone, to help them learn how to reconnect to their body's hunger and and fullness signals and be able to explore with them what foods they like or they feel open to. And I mean, I'm thinking of someone now that eats one meal a day and they were overwhelmed with me even saying like, oh, can we try three meals and a couple snacks? And now we're at, you know, Three meals of the, the foods that feel safe and comfortable. So if someone is, you know, nutritionally compromised, my goal is to be able to work alongside with them and help them come up with suggestions that can help increase their consumption. And and what happens quite often is I'm clarifying misconceptions and debunking. Well, I always like to say the bartering in Mexico begins when I'm wanting to work in something and they'll say no, I want such and such, and to be able to give the rationale behind it because I think one of the other side effects other than low or lack of libido is just the idea of feeling satisfied because the, the problem is that an individual has a lot of GI issues when they're restricting. They're gassy, they're bloated, they're constipated. If they report they do have a bowel movement, it's not a real bowel movement. They're little pellets. So really talking about the anatomy me And just the biochemistry of what a person's body goes through, especially as we are increasing their intake. So, yes, I would never just have someone in the ocean. I mean, we're starting with like the floaties in the kid pool to be able to help them learn how to establish a little bit of trust and confidence and I think the first part is for them to establish a relationship with me and know that they can trust me as well. So I would not just have it be free flowing, you know, go to the yeah. ocean and yeah, good start luck. where they are, which is course. so
0: important. I'd love to talk for a little bit about binge eating. I know that restrictive eating can lead to that. I, it did for me, And I had more shame around that, even though it probably helped save me, you know, because I went from malnourished to at least, you know, eating. Um, but there's so much shame around it. People feel like they're the only one who's doing it. and and my binge eating, we're not talking about you over ate some chips. it's it It's like a, a motor takes over, and it is incredibly painful. I used to almost go into like a trance-like state. and it, it is it's scary. um and and I've said that one of the one of the time that I felt the most brave, People have pointed out other things in my life, and they don't feel brave, um, their guesses. What felt brave to me was eating a meal after binging, and it changed things for me to, to do the thing that, you know, you have to take your baby steps. But I remember just shaking and crying and eating this meal um, because it did help me learn to trust my body again. Nothing terrible happened, even though I wasn't hungry yet, but I just was trying to break this vicious cycle. Um, how often do you see binge eating in your practice?
1: I would say, and, and the this is the number one eating disorder that people struggle with and the most overlooked, 60% of women who have eating disorder struggle with BED, which is binge eating disorder, and 40% of males. And I would say more times than none, someone has referred to me for something else. Maybe it's a medical issue. Maybe they're going through fertility and they currently have binge eating disorder and they have felt so much shame or judgment from their doctor that they never even brought it up. And I want them to know when they see me that it is a safe space. So I would say more times than none. Um, And people could look like any body shape and size and struggle with binge eating disorder, they don't have to live in a larger body. That's the term we like to use in my profession is, quote, unquote, a larger body versus unless some ident- somebody identifies themselves as rabbit ears, as a fat person. But it's, it's very offensive to use the term, quote, unquote, fat or obese or morbidly obese. Those are um, Uh, very direct, aggressive terms. So I have, within my own work, really learned how to develop new vocabulary over the last bunch of years, because I would never want to do more harm than good. And unfortunately, when a person is going to a provider, that can contribute to it or open the can of worms where they're avoiding it. So to answer your question, binge eating disorder is something I see day in and day out, and it's helping the individual feel like that they can be in charge of their food versus the food being in charge of them. And also, you know, sharing with them that the food has served a purpose for them throughout their life, or it wouldn't be a behavior that they would engage in to medicate, to suppress, to avoid a confrontation, uncomfortable feeling, a failure. Family gathering, the, you know, the food becomes their lover. It becomes their best friend. It becomes their companion. And when a person has an eating disorder, any kind of eating disorder, it's not possible to have another relationship in their life because their relationship is their eating disorder.
0: Mm-hmm. Very much so. That was really well said, and and so so accurate from everything that I've learned personally and and people I've spoken to that there's. It's almost like um, a relationship with a a, a toxic partner that starts out seeming really great, you know, and things kind of spiral or, you know, you don't realize the person's controlling. And then it becomes one term I like that you used earlier. You said a person who is in a larger body. Is that some of the more um, the different language that you have adopted?
1: Yes. Yeah. yeah. Absolutely. I mean, and, and and I actually have colleagues that are not eating disorder registered dietitians like myself there are other, you know, other forms of health care. And when I'll hear them talk about someone they're referring to me and I can't help myself but want to, I don't want to say correct them, but say, well, this is the term we like to use. And I had, you know, a colleague recently laugh and say, oh, Robin, you're, you're still with the living in a larger body, like they're fat. I'll say, you know what, unless a person like there's a number of fat activists in my field and they will, you know. Say, if they embrace it yes it's exactly yeah. like you know I have a colleague who wears a necklace and it's his fat goddess it's like if that's how you identify but to be labeled is is very offensive and intrusive and very violating and that puts the barrier up even further yes
0: it's so true you just brought to my mind something I think is so important that I still see happening a lot um, Unfortunately, people don't realize sometimes that commenting on a person's weight is not a good idea. Could you speak to why that could be problematic in general? You know, you don't even know the person's scenario and you just, you see a person, you think they look great, and you say to them, wow, you look awesome, you must have lost weight.
1: Yes. Thank you for bringing this up. So, you know, speaking about weight, we don't know if somebody has a medical problem, if they have Cancer. If they have a metabolic condition, um, what maybe they have some sort of stressor going on in their life? If they have an eating disorder, and 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 the problem is just the idea that people want to talk about weight. Maybe we could talk about, you know what, I really love the energy you bring here and and tell me what's going on with you and your kids and what kind of new hobbies have you been exploring? But the idea of speaking about weight opens a can of worms that is really unnecessary. The only time that we quote unquote need to know our weight is if we are getting dialysis okay if we are getting um, a different psychotropic drug then perhaps that's necessary chemotherapy but you're not going to walk out somewhere and say hi my name is august i always such and such like people don't care there's days that we feel more comfortable in our body we feel less comfortable but the idea of using a number and in fact there's something, and they just merge. So the, the Southern Scale Smash, I don't know if you've heard of that before. I have it, but it so, sounds cool. So the Southern Scale Smash, Southern Scale Smash my colleague, um, McCall Dempsey, who's now just joined with the Alliance for Eating Disorders, she has gone around all over the country, and I was a sponsor last year when it was UCLA, bringing old-fashioned scales and sledgehammers. And if you're attached to a particular grade point average or a weight or... Any kind of number, it's being able to let that go. Mm -hmm. And with a sledgehammer, breaking the scale apart and then creating an art therapy project with it. That is brilliant. I love that. We were
0: talking earlier about that I did a TEDx talk, right? And I talked about surviving an eating disorder. And the whole message was not about shape or size. It was about... numbers, like that we are also ruled by these things that are superficial and don't matter. So I was just picturing like at the end of a talk, just like smashing a scale would be very powerful. That sounds like a really cathartic thing for someone to do too. It's like a letting go process. Maybe, maybe you're going through treatment and you're healing and, you know, you want to have this rampage of getting rid of those things. And maybe you have a close friend who, who wants to support you and just... Oh, that sounds like it feels so good
1: yes I, I actually have when I create goals with clients that's one that we put on our list is how to get rid of the scale out of their life and I actually have in my office which you'll have to come see one of the very first scales someone made for me as an art project um, I would say it's the most beautiful scale I ever received because instead of people feeling I have to get rid of it permanently I'll say well Put it on loan with me. Store it here. And when you want it, we'll give it back. And we'll talk about that and process that. So I have a, a scale that a client did for me when I left the eating disorder program that I ran for many years. And it's um, it has a donut. On it, and it was painted, and it says carbs. And then all around it are other foods that she legalized cereal and candy. And it, it's um, something people always comment on when they mm. come into my office because oftentimes the others are in little pieces and could not put up there. But um, yeah, I think it's a great art project. awesome.
0: As you're speaking, I'm wishing I could like go back in time and have you be my dietician when I'm yeah. really struggling because yeah, finding a good fit is important. I think that's really, that's really, really powerful. Really quickly, could we run this through some myths about eating disorders? I know um, we could have a whole episode about it, but I know there's some really common ones. And one is that they primarily or only affect women.
1: Yes, not true. So eating eating disorders affect all ages, genders, body shapes, and sizes. Um, people don't realize that the one of the fastest growing group of eating disorder individuals are empty nesters as well. I actually was um, in Washington, DC lobbying on Capitol Hill for Eating Disorder Advocacy Day um, to, protect the Affordable Cares Act. And it's so common that individuals that are 65 and up, whether they have some sort of loss, trauma, um, death, something, or they they were dieters in the past that's been instigated based on whatever challenge has occurred in their life, um, that eating disorders only occur in Caucasian females, not not true. Upper
0: class too. Yes. Right?
1: Yes. Actually, research shows, but um, when there's food scarcity, they're more likely to developing disorder, especially binge eating disorder, as well. That's interesting. Um, also, the the idea that um, you know people could have eating disorders with eating food from vending machines it doesn't have to be like when you're referencing before you know orthorexia nervosa it's whatever they have access to yeah or even I knew somebody who had an eating disorder
0: and she only ate candy and when people see, saw her eating candy, they assumed she didn't have a problem because why would somebody with anorexia eat a Twix? And it's
1: that just is not. Right, stereotyped. What it's about. Exactly. Yes, exactly. I mean it can be any food, any quantity. Also, too, you know, I think people don't realize when there's what's called um, exercise bulimia, purging through exercise. That is an eating disorder. And often, people say like, "Oh, you're so healthy. You're exercising." Well you're spending many hours a day or you felt guilty for having some Doritos and now I'm going to run five miles. Or you skip
0: class to exercise, like you put your life around it. Yeah. Yeah. That's such a good point because most people, I mean, if you run a marathon every day, that's incredibly harmful to your body and to your mind. It takes so much time, all these things. And I love that you brought up that it's it's a it's a whole relationship. It takes over. So if you are in a relationship with someone and your your partner has an eating disorder, um, it's like there are three entities. Do you have any tips for somebody who um, has a loved one or an intimate partner who has an eating disorder, or maybe they they suspect one?
1: Well, I would say the the partner, it would be valuable for them to go into therapy. Because it affects the family member and the partners as well. It's not just the identified patient. And really, as they feel comfortable to be able to have a heart-to-heart conversation about their concerns, kind of like an intervention, especially if they are over 18 and they're making choices. I mean, I have clients that are in treatment because their partners have left them or they have kids and a husband and they're hanging in there with them, but it's a whole family affair. It affects everybody. There's there's not one body part or organ part that is affected. And I think people perceive if they have an eating disorder, whether they're abusing laxatives and diuretics or they compulsively exercised exercising that nothing will happen to them, they'll be fine. And they're living on borrowed time as I, as I see it. It's like Russian roulette. It's the roll of the dice and you never know. Like I have a, a client who blacked out and she had no idea that, like, wow, this this happened. I mean, it's serious.
0: So- it's They're so dangerous. I've lost people I know to eating disorders. I almost lost me. Like it's – you can be so afraid of the – grasp of the eating disorder and the torment and all these things you think you're afraid of and still be afraid of dying and still not be able to stop. And that's a really vicious thing. Um, But the rewards of turning that around are so incredible.
1: Well, also, they live in a very small, narrow world and to think how much grander their life can be. But also it's and there's so much fear of taking a chance and adding you know some nuts and all these things well if a person is struggling i have found with some basic suggestions i'm making and and i'm a part of different ensort treatment teams with an ensort trained therapist if there is a psychiatrist if they if the therapist thinks they do require meds and then either an internist or pediatrician they probably need to be in a higher level of care so You know, what that could look like is, depending on where they're at, so the lowest level of care is what's called IOP, Intensive Outpatient Program, and then PHP, Partial Hospitalization Program, and then they go into Residential. So
0: Yeah. Knowing that there are many options available many. is so important. That, taking that first step can be really hard. Um, so just if anyone's listening and you're in a place where you just feel like you can't talk to anyone. I know the National Eating Disorder Association has a hotline. You can even call and anonymously talk to someone. I think talking to someone the first time, which must happen to you quite a bit, mm-hmm. um, is such a relief because you're so scared to do it. And I remember just like my whole body sweating. But once you put the words out into the air, um, at least for me, it was really comforting.
1: Definitely. I mean, we have a lot of wonderful resources. And I always like to tell people, so I'm the Los Angeles ambassador for it's called IFED, which is the International Federation of Eating Disorder Dietitians. So I do on-site visits of treatment centers all over the country and bring them in. And we have, it's our dietitian-only organization group, three dinners a year, and their treatment center will talk about, you know, what they offer. But now we've made it more educational. They'll bring the registered dietitian and something that they're doing in their program that's cutting edge and the reasons we would want to refer to them. So I always like to say, I mean, I really... You know, pride myself on being up to date in all resources that we have available, and there's also the Academy of Eating Disorders (AED) and then IADEP, which is the International Association of Eating Disorder Professionals. So those are our main um, organizations. And then if one wants to find a registered dietitian in their local area, they could that is eating disorder trained and body positive as well to be able to go on the IFED website, which is eddietitians.com
0: perfect we'll try and put some links down in the show notes so people can find those really easily so we've talked a lot about um, restriction and disordered eating and and uh, these really common difficult issues for people in general who just feel like they want to they want to eat a little healthier they want to make sure they're they're taking care of their bodies but All they are finding are these big conflicting messages. What are some of the healthy steps we can all take in our lives to just take care of ourselves without having these kind of problems derive?
1: Allow your body to be your barometer. I mean, I think, you know, our body is a brilliant machine. And unfortunately, for many people, it's confused based on all the bombard messages that we hear. And I always like to say, and some people say, well, what is a carbohydrate or what is protein and what is fat? And that's a whole other show. But all of our bodies require some of each. Um, And really being able to pay attention to what do i like and how does it make my body feel i think are two you know questions to ask ourselves each time that we're consuming food yes.
0: that's so great that's so important and i love that idea of the body being the barometer it's it's so empowering too to once you get to a place where you are able to trust and listen to your body how many benefits do unfold in all relationships but most importantly with our with ourselves and I think a lot of times we might seek help because we feel like we're causing problems for other people because our self-worth is not where it should be um, but the benefits that do unfold are pretty awesome. Um, could you share what y- you've seen? I'm sure so m- much of this um, people's progress and rewards what are some of the Maybe a story or something that really stands out to you as um, the, the outcome when people go through this and do well.
1: A person who stands out who's been with me for a handful of years, a male actually with an eating disorder, was in several treatment centers. This was over the course of, I would say, six or seven months and struggled for a number of of years Um, a millennial male and now has a, a documentary that's going to be coming out is working has like a whole staff of people and it's really amazing to see how his life is so full I mean he's um he has a, a, a surfing coach. He takes surfing lessons. says so all so it's it's really nice to see and and now our sessions have really change where it's like Robin I'd like to you know talk about what kind of nutrition could support my surfing and or I was reading about a new restaurant like tell me some new restaurants that you'd like for me to try and it's really cool and rewarding and it warms my heart to see how I can have a conversation that is so much more advanced than where we started early on. Yeah
0: and not even very much about food. Definitely. Passion and curiosity and interests and dreams they might not have known they had.
1: Absolutely. I mean, I remember even when he, you know, traveled internationally with his family and he came back and he's like, "Yeah, we went to this Michelin-starred restaurant." And was telling me about. It. I thought Gosh, I remember when he had, like, three foods he was eating. And and not to say there's choices that he still won't consume, but just the willingness and being open and just his overall persona and demeanor and who he is has really evolved. Mm-hmm. And I always say it's like I'm a proud parent seeing how my clients can really flourish.
0: Yeah, yeah. And to have the ability to be present with another person and in life and have these conversations, it's beautiful. So you have a very exciting project that you're working on. I know you can only tell us a little bit, um, but please share about your book.
1: So I've been working on a book for the last number of years, and the title is The Eating Disorder Trap, A Guide for Clinicians and Loved Ones. It will be out in 2020. Um, My hope is the beginning of the year. This is a book written for anybody. It's um, for providers, whether they are eating disorder trained or not, loved ones, written in a way that it's really understandable. And it's really what I would describe as a resource that encompasses everything in my field clarifying misconceptions, how loved ones, coaches, religious people can be able to be involved. And it's, um, I'm so fortunate to have you know, a, a strong support network of colleagues that have really, you know, believed in the project and have been there for me. So I have a um, handful of expert contributors, actually um, a number of well-known eating disorder physicians, several adult and adolescent, and then a couple of well-known eating disorder therapists. And I felt like having those resources would add additional credibility. So I'm, I'm really excited about it, and it's wonderful to see a light start to arrive at the end of my tunnel, and I'm so passionate about it and helping people.
0: Yeah, I'm excited, too. I can't wait to um, help support it once it's out. Thank you. So people who want to follow along, get word when it's out, how can they stay in touch with you?
1: So my business website is askaboutfood.com, and the book website, which has a splash page on right now, is theeatingdisordertrap.com. And for... All information about the book it will be on there, but there is just a basic you know homepage on there now. Otherwise, everything will be through askaboutfood.com. I can be followed on Instagram at robingoldbergrdn, and I'm forgetting my Twitter address at the moment as well.
0: That's okay. <laughs> if you search for Robin Goldberg. I'm sure they'll find you on Twitter Yes, as well. Thank you so much for being here and for sharing so much. I I love the work you do. Thank
1: you so much, August. I really appreciate it. It's been fantastic. I really enjoyed my time with you.
0: And if you're enjoying Girl Boner Radio, please hit subscribe where you're listening and consider leaving us a rating and review. I've said this before, but I mean this especially this time. If you have a friend or a loved one who you think might be struggling, please share this episode with them. It might be a good way to start a conversation or or maybe get them the support that they need. Thank you so much for listening and have a beautiful Girl Boner Embracing Week. Girl Boner Radio is owned, operated, and executively produced by me, August McLaughlin, with technical producer and audio extraordinaire Mackenzie Mazzal as part of the Period Podcast Network, an affiliate of Starburns Industries. Learn more about the Girl Boner podcast, brand, movement, and book series at girlboner.org and more about Period at periodnetwork.com.